Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the continued gift of being the church, the gift of our health, the gift of gathering. We love you. We ask your blessing upon us. We pray that we would learn from you today and learn from each other. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. We are studying Daniel chapter four, correct? That is where we are. Yes. Yes. Thumbs up. Good. All right. Well, let's read the final chapter about King Nebuchadnezzar. And unlike other portions of Daniel, the author of this chapter, at least as it's written, it's written from the perspective of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so we have, ironically, a pagan ruler writing Holy Scripture, bearing witness to the glory of God. Verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, languages that live throughout the earth, may you have abundant prosperity. The signs and wonders that the most high God has worked for me, I am pleased to recount. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his sovereignty is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living at ease in my home and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that frightened me, my fantasies in bed, and the visions of my head terrified me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me in order that they might tell me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not tell me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and who is endowed with the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, oh, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that you are endowed with the spirit of the holy gods and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Hear the dream that I saw. Tell me the interpretation upon my bed. This is what I saw. There was a tree at the center of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew great and strong. Its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, and it provided food for all. The animals of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the air nested in its branches, and from it all living beings were fed. I continued looking in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and there was a holy watcher coming down from heaven He cried aloud and said, cut down the tree, chop off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from beneath it and the birds from its branches, but leave its stump and roots in the ground with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field. Let him be bathed with the dew of heaven and let his lot be with the animals of the field and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a human and let the mind of the animal be given to him and let seven times pass over him. The sentence is rendered by decree of the watchers. The decision is given by order of the holy ones in order that all who live may know that the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of mortals. He gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of human beings. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation. Since all the wise men of my kingdom are unable to tell me the interpretation, you are able, however, for you have 
been endowed with the spirit of the holy gods. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and pause there and just say a word or two about the first half of this chapter. Now, the good news is we know where it begins. It has a happy ending because by verse three, King Nebuchadnezzar does not have the mind of an animal. He has a sane mind because he is praising God's kingdom as an everlasting kingdom and saying that God's sovereignty is from generation to generation. Now, this is the thesis of the book of Daniel, basically that God is in charge, that God is sovereign, that Daniel does not have a spirit of the most high gods, but the Holy Spirit of the one living God. And so Nebuchadnezzar gets that, and we know that he's going to end up there. But first, he has to go on a journey, and as he has had in the past, he has a frightening dream, and we all know the story by now. He brings in all the Chaldeans and the magicians. You know, it kind of makes you wonder, has he really not learned his lesson? Can he just go straight to Daniel, the one who always cracks the code? But no, we have to kind of go through the whole storyline where no one else can get it. And Daniel comes in last and listens to the dream. And essentially, the dream is about a tree, great and strong, that reaches to the top of the heavens and the animals are making shade under the branches, but the tree gets cut down. Now, a few things about this tree. Number one, the fact that it reaches to the top of the heavens, this should bring to mind the imagery of Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel, a symbol. So in, in the book of Genesis, the Tower of Babel is really symbolic for human pride and arrogance. It is the fruit of the fall that began in chapter three of Genesis with Adam and Eve disobeying God's command. And by the time you get to chapter 11, humanity is arrogant. They're ready to reach to the top of the, the heavens with their own willpower. They have forgotten that their existence uh, in creation is a gift from God. And how does that story end? God scatters them and knocks their tower down. And so that imagery is being evoked. And the same thing is going to happen to this tree. We're told in verse 13 that the watchers declare that this tree will be chopped down. Other parallels in New Testament literature consider the parable Jesus begins by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field which is indeed the least of all the seeds, but when it's grown um, uh, and becomes a tree, the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Well, Jesus is clearly making a reference to this dream, except Jesus talks about the right kind of tree. The kingdom of heaven is the right kind of tree, but the one that Nebuchadnezzar represents is the wrong kind of tree, which is why it will be cut down. And of course, we can find other New Testament parallels, for instance, where Jesus says in Matthew 7, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, that a good tree will bear good fruit, that the bad trees have to be chopped down. Or think about John the Baptist, you know, the axe is lying at the root of the tree. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down. Or think about Psalm 1, you know, happy is the man who knows the Lord. He is like a tree planted by streams of living water. And so this biblical imagery 
um, this deep archetype of the soul of the tree and whether or not the tree is healthy uh, is found in the book of Daniel. And it's all part of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the meaning should be very clear. Now, one of the things I want us to notice is that there is grace in the dream and there's grace in the dream not only because we know how Nebuchadnezzar ends up, right? He ends up praising the living God, but we have this great line in verse 15 where it says, leave, leave the stump. I've accidentally deleted that. I'll do that. undo that. It says, leave the stump. Don't cut down the stump. And essentially, this is God's way of saying, you know, we're bringing this thing down to the studs, but we're going to rebuild it. I'm not here to destroy. I'm here to refine. My judgment is a refining judgment, and it's in Nebuchadnezzar's best interest that I cut this down to the stump, because something more holy, something more pure is going to grow back. And so there's lots of biblical imagery about the stump. Um, I just pulled one verse from Isaiah where it says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots that shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This is a messianic prophecy, right? That out of the stump, out of what's left, the people of Judah, something new will emerge and that this will be the Messiah himself. And so in the dream, there is clearly hope. And yet first, Nebuchadnezzar has to go on a journey. Verse 16, let his mind be changed from that of a human and may he have the mind of an animal instead essentially Nebuchadnezzar has had his chance. This is not his first dream. This is not his second dream. I'm not sure. It might not even be his third dream. I've, I've really lost count myself, but the point is he's had plenty of chances to worship the Lord. And now God has to come in and take drastic measures. It, it also kind of echoes that story of Pharaoh and the book of Exodus, where it says Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. But then, like for the fifth plague, it says, so God hardened Pharaoh's heart. You have the agency change. And I think a similar point is being made here that um, Nebuchadnezzar has made his choices. He's made his bed. He now needs to lie in it. And so what is the sentence of the watchers? What is the decision and why is it made? It is made so that all who live may know that the most high is sovereign over the kingdom of mortals. He gives it to whom he will, and he sets it over the lowliest of human beings. Again, not a new message. It is the same message over and over. God is saying to Nebuchadnezzar and God is saying to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I am in charge. I am the God of heaven. Uh, I give it and I take it away. I've entrusted you, Nebuchadnezzar, with this rule. I expect you to steward it well. If you don't, if you don't acknowledge me, then out you go. And so that is the first part of the chapter. And we'll get to Daniel's interpretation here in a moment. But I'll go ahead and pause there and see uh, how that resonates with you and what questions you have. So the question I hear, Mary, is uh, could this this ritual of this is happening the third time, like, are, are you asking, is it a point of, of emphasis 
Yeah, because it seems it, it does seem obvious that he knows Daniel is going to be able to interpret gene dreams through his God. He knows that we know he knows that. Why does he not go? That's an obvious question to ask. And so I am wondering if the reason he goes to all the Chaldeans, this wise man, but if that's just part of, yes, the emphasis, it's it's almost again, yeah. like the you know, holy words three times to make the emphasis. Yeah, I I actually see it, Mary. It could be that. I see this more as a mirror of human nature. I mean, how many of us have stuck our foot in the same muddle, you know, the same muddy puddle, have made the same mess multiple times before we've learned our lesson? I mean, is that, does everyone have that experience of like, oh my gosh, I did it again? Yeah. Oops. I mean, it's a very human thing. We are very slow to learn when what we have to learn is how not to be selfish in the center of our own world. I mean, that is kind of like the human experience in some sense. And so Nebuchadnezzar, in a sense, really isn't that unique. I think that we could see in him a mirror for all of us that we've all had plenty of chances to learn. Life and God has given us so many dreams, so many Daniels, so many messengers, so many opportunities to grow up and become the nice, emotionally mature, peaceful people Jesus calls us to be. And yet a few of us learn it the first time, few of us learn it the second time. And frankly, the fact that Nebuchadnezzar gets it the third time is, you know, not bad. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's go ahead now to Daniel's interpretation. Verse 19, then Daniel, who is called Belteshazzar was severely distressed for a while. His thoughts terrified him. The king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or the interpretation terrify you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew great and strong, so that its top reached to heaven and was visible to the ends of the earth, whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which provided food for all under which animals of the field lived and in whose branches the birds of the air had nests. It's you, O king. You have grown great and strong. Your greatness has increased and your sovereignty to the ends of the earth. And whereas the king saw a holy watcher coming down from heaven and saying, cut the tree down and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the ground with a band of iron and bronze and the grass of the field and let him be bathed with the dew of heaven and let his lot be with animals until seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and it's a decree of the most high that has come upon my Lord, the king. You shall be driven away from human society and your dwelling shall be with wild animals. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen. You shall be bathed with the dew of heaven and seven times shall pass over you until you have learned that the most high has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives to it whom he will as it was commanded to leave the stump and roots of the tree your kingdom shall be reestablished for you from the time that you learn that heaven is sovereign therefore O king may my counsel be acceptable to you atone for your sins with righteousness and your iniquities with mercy to the oppressed so that your prosperity may be prolonged Okay, I'm going to go ahead and just pause there for a moment and make a few notes. The first is, 
can you tell Daniel really likes Nebuchadnezzar by now? I mean, it's kind of tender, right? Like Nebuchadnezzar still calls him Belteshazzar, named after the Babylonian gods. But Daniel's like, you know what? I can put up with this guy's idiosyncrasies. He might be kind of a, a jerk, but whatever. You know, I'll take the name. And he's been through this dance with Nebuchadnezzar many times. He probably is somewhat fond of him. Daniel is a, a lover of God and thus a lover of people. So he has a soft spot for Nebuchadnezzar. And so whenever he hears the dream, he says, I really hope this is for your enemies. But then he says, the good news is your kingdom will be restored, but that's not going to happen until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals. And your kingdom will be reestablished, but only when you learn that heaven is sovereign. And notice the very specific counsel he says, you need to atone for your sins. But then he kind of throws in this message of mercy to the oppressed. And the reason I point that out is because it is not at all a theme of the book of Daniel, but those things are always assumed. It is always assumed that fidelity to God is about mercy to the oppressed and looking out for the last and the least. And that is something that King Nebuchadnezzar has not done. And so essentially what we have in this little mm. snippet is Daniel basically breaks the bad news. He's done it before. I don't know why this is so hard for Daniel. In chapter two, he basically said, you're going to be demolished. You know, you're the head of gold on the statue that you dreamed that got crushed by that stone. But Daniel really likes Nebuchadnezzar. So he basically says, I'm so, so sorry to give you this news, but you're about to go through the ringer here. And you're going to go through the ringer because you have not learned the fundamental lesson that God has wanted you to learn, which is that you are not in charge, that you don't get to do whatever you want, that mercy to the oppressed is what God requires, and that the very thing that you take for granted, God's going to take it away. And when God does, then you will learn who's really in charge, and then you will learn the art of humility. So I'm going to go ahead and pause there and see uh, what comments you have before we get to the real action where Nebuchadnezzar actually goes crazy. So the final portion, starting in verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king said, is this not magnificent Babylon, which I have built? It's a royal capital by my own mighty power and for my glorious majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it's declared, the kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven away from human society. Your dwelling shall be with animals of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen. Seven times shall pass over you until you have learned that the most high God has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the sentence was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven away from human society, ate grass like oxen. His body was bathed with the dew of heaven. His hair grew long as eagle's feathers. His nails became like bird's claws. When that period was over, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. I bless the Most High and praise and honor the one who lives forever. For his sovereignty is an everlasting sovereignty and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does what he wills with the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can stay his hand or say, what are you doing? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors and my lords sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the kingdom of heaven, for all his works are truth, his ways are justice, and he is able to bring low those who walk in pride. Okay, so just want to like notice something. Nebuchadnezzar's had this horrible dream. The same person who has interpreted it with 100% pinpoint accuracy gives him another interpretation. And notice that Nebuchadnezzar gets complacent. So I want you to notice God's grace, that the dream didn't necessarily need to be fulfilled, right? It didn't happen immediately. But what does it say? At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof. And so like Nebuchadnezzar could have repented, could have learned the lesson from the dream and actually not had this come to pass. But he basically says after a month or two, oh, that was just a bad dream. I'm going to go back to being, you know, my same dictator, crazy self. And so he's walking on the roof uh, of a royal palace, um, kind of brings to mind echoes of David walking on the roof and seeing Bathsheba bathe. Um, this is a place where uh, things happen in the Bible. Uh, and he says to himself, am I not magnificent? Have I not achieved awesomeness by building a royal capital? Am I not the best of all time? I mean, he's praising himself. And that's the moment God says, okay, I've had enough. Now is the time. The kingdom has departed from you and everything in that dream is going to come to pass. And so as Nebuchadnezzar tells the story, it all happened. His Nails became shark like eagles, and he just basically went insane. You see this picture here. That's a classic piece of art portraying King Nebuchadnezzar. I could have chosen others, um, but it kind of paints a picture of uh, what was happening during this period. And then we're not really told how it ends, but in verse 34, he says, When that period was over, I lifted my eyes to the heavens. This is code for repentance, okay? Um, whenever he lifts his eyes to the heaven, um, that is when he is ready to come to his senses and bless the Most High God and to acknowledge that Nebuchadnezzar actually has no real power in and of himself, but that whatever power he has comes to him as a gift of God. And in verse 36, he says, my reason has returned to me. And the kingdom has been given back, that there was more greatness added to me. The difference, though, is that now Nebuchadnezzar can steward that greatness well, because he realizes that it's not about him. It's not about his glory. It's not about the great Babylonian city. He understands that Babylon is a temporary and permanent manifestation of a passing fad. And that the only thing that actually lasts is God himself and what God says will last. And notice the final words of the chapter. He is able to bring below those who walk in pride. You know, this theme should be very familiar. What does Jesus say in Luke 14? Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, 
those who humbled themselves will be exalted. Or think of the Magnificat in Luke chapter one. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. And so this thing that happens to Nebuchadnezzar, one of the things that we have to realize is it's not like this one-off thing that God does. It's actually what God is always doing and what God will always do. God will humble the proud and raise up the humble. And the moment we lose sight of who we are as creatures dependent on our existence, the moment that we lose sight of what it means to live in a world where we are not in charge, but God is, whether it's a human being or a nation or a group of people, that there inevitably becomes a time when those words are, if not spoken, then felt. The kingdom has departed from you. It's time for you to go crawl around with the animals and be humbled until you learn what you need to learn, which is that I am God and you are not. And so is this about King Nebuchadnezzar? Absolutely. Is it about you? Is it about me? Is it about the church? Is it a message that Jesus took from day number one and folded into his parables? Absolutely. It is old and yet the newest, freshest experience a human being can have. So I'll go ahead and pause there. And we have plenty of time to reflect on Nebuchadnezzar. Mary. Okay. So I, this time, especially, I, I don't think I did this when I first read it myself, but when he says, and my reason returned to me, the first time I'm like, okay, it's there. But then he does say at that time, my re- reason returned to me. I think he's still a little proud. I think it might be new reason came to him a la the experience with God or with in the, in the wild. Um, unless it's back to the cycling in and the, again, this human mirror of getting it and then losing it and getting it. I just, I don't know. I've, I've, my reason returned to me, to me is sitting as a place to cons- just to reflect on and think about. So what you're saying is it still feels a little arrogant the way it's yeah. written. It's like, oh, like my reason, reason has returned. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Well, and I can't really speak too much to that other than to say, Mary, in that verse, um, notice what comes before it. My eyes. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to the heaven, heaven and my reason returned to me. It's important that the lifting of the eyes to the heaven precedes the return of reason the arrogant stance would say my reason is there and thus i lifted my eyes to the heaven but in christian theology and understanding reason is not this independent faculty that enables us to praise god but rather reason is the fruit of eyes lifted to the heaven. And of course, if you think about that too deeply, it's going to raise all sorts of questions about human agency and God's agency, free will versus determinism. I mean, all those conversations are wrapped up into what I said, but it would be kind of the orthodox stance that reason comes from eyes properly set on God, that actually a vision of God enables us to be reasonable. I'd say that's I guess I'm still stumbling around the issue, the same issue that Mary raised because um, 
his, and I think I'm hypersensitive to narcissism uh, a bit because the wording that he uses is, you know, my reason was returned to me, which is fine. And then, but splendor was restored, returned, uh, restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. It's like not splendor was restored to, you know, our community and, you know, the people and that, you know, for the glory to God, you know, it's my kingdom. And, 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 then, and then he goes on later on, he says that I was reestablished over my kingdom, not, you know, I'm a temporary placeholder for, for God and, and still more greatness was added to yeah. me. Yeah. Not, you know, this demonstrating the glory of God. And so, I, you know, and, and at the end, he sort of finally gets it. Um, I mean, at the very, very end, but the guy still has a lot of work to do. <laughs> in my mind. So well, Barbara, I couldn't oh, help but wonder how long this phase would last, you know, because we've seen him come and go to understanding before. And, and I have to agree with Barbara. Um, there are still some seeds in this, these verses that show he, he hadn't quite mastered the lesson. And so I couldn't help but wonder as I read this, well, how long is this going to last before he goes back to thinking this is all his doing? So I, I agree with both of you. I, and I think it's there. I think it's a very astute thing that you're noticing. And I, I think, again, that is, th so this is the last we hear of Nebuchadnezzar, right? We're going to go to his son next week. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar kind of falls off the path and his son who inherits the kingdom after him is, the one we're going to look at next, but I think that y'all are right. I mean, I, th I think that it's all there, but I also think that is the human experience, right? That the idea that like we resist God, resist God, then have this transformation moment and emerge perfect. And this nice tidy package uh, is not the human experience. Rather the human experience is I'm a little better than before, but I'm still got that arrogance kind of dressing up in spiritual clothing now. I mean, I think that's kind of how we humans are sometimes. Maybe it's good. We are sitting here noticing and being uncomfortable with that, those words and that narcissism. Maybe that's part of what we're learning today for ourselves. I mean, I think I shared this in a podcast or so. I don't really remember. Um, I've, we've been a lot of podcasts, haven't we, this last year? But, you know, one of the things I, sh I shared, and we were talking about idolatry, was uh, my own personal desire for success, right? That that would be an idol. And that the way that would have been lived out had I not responded to God's call to the priesthood would have been like, I'm going to go kill it on Wall Street. I'm going to make a lot of money. I mean, all like the normal worldly metrics of success. But like the question I raised, which the answer is obvious, is by going to seminary, did that particular idol just disappear or did it learn to dress up differently? And of course, the answer is it learns to dress up differently. So then that looks like, oh, you know, church growth or these metrics, you know, the bigger, the better. 
And I don't think that's necessarily like bad. It's just bad when you can't name it. And when you don't have a spiritual director or a community to work on it with, and when you can't tell the truth about it, because my experience of humanity and Jesus says as much in his parables is that the wheat and the tares, they grow together and only at the harvest are they separated. Meaning, you know, and each thing we do, we've got some good and bad mixed together. And I think the goal is to let God's goodness infuse as much of that mixture as we can while we're alive. So I agree about Nebuchadnezzar. He's a little bit better than he was before by the grace of God, but still kind of a jerk. Yeah. Think of a little bit of a, something that I heard from Wayne Dyer. People know who that is, but he talks about ego and he says he, he has a word for each letter, E-G-O, and it's edging God out. So this kind of, this makes me think of that. <clears throat> yeah. So what I would have us, um, you know, this, this pattern of being brought low and being raised up. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that maybe you tend to hear this as kind of negative or maybe bad news, or at least not overwhelmingly positive. Uh, I, no, I can't speak for you. You can, you can speak for yourself here in a bit, but what I would also have us see is that this is not just God's judgment, but it's also God's salvation, that they're actually one and the same. And so, for instance, in the notes, I shared um, the Christ hymn from Philippians 2, where Paul says, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, humbling himself, becoming obedient to death on a cross. But then it says, and so God exalted him um, with a name that is above every name. And of course, this is a reference to the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But even though life will tend to humble all of us, when life inevitably, uh, maybe you've had this experience, but life doesn't cooperate with our preferences, wishes, and demands, right? Life is life. Our wishes, preferences, and demands are our, wish our wishes, preferences, and demands. And the hilarious expectation we have that they align <laughs> never happens, right? And so we just kind of bump against a wall time and time again, and we are brought low. But think about the great themes of uh, Holy Week and Easter coming up as we are in Lent. Think about Holy Week and, you know, Ash Wednesday when we reflect on our mortality. Think about Jesus's death. The ultimate humbling of oneself, the ultimate being brought low is death. And the gospel of resurrection is that at that moment, when we are brought to nothing, mm. at that moment, when we are reduced to a speck about to fade out of existence, that God lifts up the lowly. And that's what the doctrine of resurrection is. And so as you hear about Nebuchadnezzar's being brought low, as you think about 
us being brought low in our pride and arrogance. It's not all bad because God's ultimate intent after humbling is to completely raise up. And that's what Easter's really about. We spend a lot of time celebrating that.